Here at the Third One Sucks, we support Black Lives Matter and stand in solidarity with those protesting against the systemic racism, police brutality, senseless murder of people of color, and especially those in the black community. We encourage everyone listening to contribute however they are able and have left a handful of links in the description where you can put any spare cash you might have to good use. If you're not sure exactly where to donate, enjoy video games, or know someone who does, the bundle for racial justice and equality on itch.io currently has over 1,500 games from over 1,000 creators, including Celeste, Night in the Woods, Oxenfree, Lena's Inception, and many, many more, for any donation made over $5. All proceeds go to the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund and the Community Bail Fund, which splits their portion of the proceeds to bail funds, mutual aid funds, and activist organizations in your local area, as well as places like Black Trans Fund, Black Lives Matter Global Network, and 69 others with a full list on their site. You can find the relevant links in the description for this episode. No justice, no peace. Stay safe out there, everybody. Welcome to The Third One Sucks, where we rank every movie in a franchise from first to worst. I'm Dan Ellis. I'm Mark Bell. And what are we going to talk about today, Mark? Oh man, today we are continuing our exploration of the works of Mamoru Hosoda with Summer Wars. Summer Wars is an animated science fiction film produced by Madhouse, directed by Momoro Hosoda, and distributed by Warner Brothers Japan. It features the voice work, among others, of Nanami Sakuraba, Mitsuki Tanimura, Sunuki Fuji, and Rinosuke Kamiki, and it premiered in Japan on August 1st, 2009. What is our fan review for this week? Our fan review this week comes from Will T., from Rotten Tomatoes, who says, I have seen some weird animes in my life, but this is by far the weirdest. Three stars. <laughs> I know you reacted the same way I did to this, <laughs> and that's the reason I pulled this review. Okay. <laughs> because, what? well, one of these things is not true. <laughs> Either you have not seen some weird-ass animes in your life, or this is not the weirdest. <laughs> right? Let's get into this one. Because I think we're going to have a lot to say about it. I think so, too. This movie opens in Oz, which is sort of a cross between Second Life and Facebook and Google kind of all rolled into one. Uh, that's a pretty good explanation of it, I think. And it's sort of difficult to talk about, but it's kind of important uh, because Oz is going to serve as the secondary setting for a lot of this movie. Oz is a shared digital social space where every user has a chosen avatar. And not only is it sort of Second Life-esque in that you can go there to, you know, hang out or attend concerts or fight with other users to see who is the strongest. So it's got all of the familiar like social media elements, but much like has happened in real life with social media over the last decade, it is very integrated with the social structure of Japan. So you can do your banking, for instance, in Second Life, or in, yeah, in Second Life in Oz. You can get <laughs> education in Oz, like most of the institutions in meat space have a presence in Oz and they're really kind of increasingly tied together. Mm -hmm. Does that seem fair? 
Yeah, it's the ubiquity of the internet, plus it's a digital space that your avatar can inhabit and you can navigate. Yeah. Also worth noting, it's established up front that Oz has two guardian angels. I'm not clear, and you can tell me this, if they are super users or if they're just like super advanced AI whose job it is to, if they're like the security scripts for Oz. I'm not sure. I have always read it as they are like security scripts. Yeah. Uh, named John and Yoko after <laughs> sure. John Lennon and Yoko Ono. I don't know that they there's an in-universe explanation for that. They just say this is their guardian angels and then there's these big whales. <laughs> visually absurd, but also visually appealing. Okay, so that sets all of that up. We also, in the immediate minutes of this film were treated to a, a bit of a news announcement about an asteroid probe. I don't remember that jumping out to me on first watch, but because I knew it was coming this time, I immediately picked up on that and thought, oh boy, that's here sooner than I realized. That asteroid probe is going to be a thread running through the movie. Mm-hmm. Okay, so once Oz is established, then we move on and meet our protagonist, which is our pal Kenji. Yes. He is, I think, a third year. Is that right? That sounds about right. He's in like the American equivalent of 11th grade. And he and his pal Takashi are, I think the English translation described it as like part-time code monkeys for Oz. There are a couple of moments in the dub that are a little weird, a little like, (laughs) but, but overall, I adore the dub of this movie. I really like the cast and how... All the important moments were delivered. Okay, so Kenji and Takashi are sitting around working on their computers, kind of half playing in Oz, half doing a little like code monkey work, which Oz being as enormous a program as it is, it makes sense that it employs not only, I'm sure, a core staff, but mm-hmm. a bunch of like part timers. I am a tech dummy. Um, when it comes to <laughs> tech, I am what the kids call dummy thick, but with a K <laughs> instead of two C's. And so. I don't know what they're doing, but it's low-level programming stuff. That's yeah, yeah. <laughs> one assumes. While they're chatting, and I think they're in Kenji's room, their pal Natsuki shows up. And she is here ostensibly to offer one of them a job. Mm-hmm. Really, it is just... She is taking a summer trip out to the country to see her grandma and her extended family. Mm-hmm. She has spun a rather complex web about the cool new boyfriend she's dating from Canada. You wouldn't know him. <laughs> right. <laughs> and she needs someone to visually fill that role so her lies are not unraveled. <laughs> she does not spell that out initially. She just says, I need someone to come with me. Right. She doesn't walk in and say, Kenji, can you be my George Glass? Right. <laughs> right. And they're both into it. Kenji and Takashi both think this is a fun idea. Ultimately, they flip a coin. Kenji decides to go. And Takashi is going to become the best friend from our war games. The one who's off in a different town who they talk to by phone and computer the whole time. Yeah, more or less. I wish, and this is one of the few, it's not even a complaint. This is just an observation as a person who really liked this film. I wish there was space for more Takashi because I really liked him. Yeah, Takashi's fun. Uh, he doesn't, he just is mostly just the smarmy best friend who is very yeah. <laughs> jealous that his friend has to go and hang out with a cute girl, but 
Like, he's fine. He's no Koshiro Izumi from our war game, but he's pretty Right. <laughs> I found his probably unearned confidence to be a nice balance to Kenji's timidity. Yes. A hundred percent. That's very nice. So we spend a little time on the train out to the countryside where I wrote it in my notes as train flirting and math flirting. Yeah. And those are two extremely nerdy things to flirt about, and neither of them are good at flirting, but they're both doing it, and it's really sweet. I don't even know if they know that they're flirting, but (laughs) I think the audience is supposed to pick up on the fact that they are. They get to the family estate, which is large, and we start to get kind of indirect hints that the history of this family is very deep. Some of it gets brought up on the train in a kind of much more direct fashion as they're kind of talking about family history. But we also, by the size of the estate, by the conversations that the families are having, both in the foreground and the background, we learn that this family is very close-knit and very proud of its lineage, which dates back to feudal Japan. There's a lot going on with the family history, and I don't know how much we want to get into it. But it merits, I think, mentioning that the family is clearly both very proud of who their family was mm-hmm. and very okay with the fact that they're all just working class now. Because we learned that the family fortunes have fallen. They don't have the money that they used to. They don't have the sort of titles and recognition that they used to. But they all seem very happy with their lives. There's, there's never a sense of entitlement Uh, You know, a few characters notwithstanding. There's not a sense of, like, entitlement or disappointment with the family's present lot. I don't know how much time we're going to spend on the family as a whole, but, like, if it was up to me, this entire podcast would be talking about the family. And also some stuff happens in Oz. It's not important. And we've talked before about how Hasoda is so very good at capturing human relationships and interactions. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these characters, most of them if you totaled up kind of their screen time and speaking time may have less than five minutes. And then most of the rest kind of are like the action is centered around our two leads, but then there's like a chunk of the family that is like the core members that we see on screen Mm -hmm. and for them, but also for the handful of them that get less than, you know, five, 10 minutes who are there in the background, but aren't really present for a lot there's still such a life to them all. And, and just based on the dialogue, but also the body language of the characters, you immediately understand how each of them relate to each other. You can sense the different family dynamics and tensions and overlaps. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's amazing. And it feels very much exactly like a big eclectic family with. Yes. it, It all feels very natural and they feel like a real family in the truest sense of the word. And I think they're also well-defined, just those tiny little moments that you could take an entire series and you could give each of these, like, individual family units an episode on their own and you would never be bored. They would all be very well-developed and you would know exactly what they were going through and who they were without being confused about what this character's deal was. And there's a quick whip round when they first get there. Natsuki introduces Kenji... First to her grandmother as her fiancé, which is a surprise to the audience and to Kenji. 
And then there's a quick rip round where she like introduces all of the family members who are currently present. So there's like a core group of the family who has showed up a little early to plan the birthday party. Mm-hmm. And then there are other family members, including uh, Natsuki's own parents, who are mm-hmm. planning to travel in across the next two days as birthday gets nearer. And while they're having this introduction, she's kind of pointing out each member of the family, you know, that's grandma's oldest son and his children and that's, you know, so forth. The movie lampshades it too. It's like, did you get all that? Well, you know, whatever. (laughs) Right. Yep. (laughs) And then as she is introducing Kenji to the bigger family, because she had pointed out to grandma, this is her fiance. And as she's discussing it with the larger family, several members of the family are surprised. Several members of the family are registering objections. Everyone kind of looks at grandma and she says, and I wrote this down because I loved it very much. The Gianucci clan has no use for mediocre men. That is her commentary on her initial commentary on Kenji. She's not saying he's mediocre. She's just (laughs) sort of like making that known to both Kenji and reminding the family that (laughs) if there's a potential new like male member of the family on the table, he had better, like, live up to the family. Yeah, and th- see, it's funny you read it that way. I read this in, because I think this is around the same time that she's like, these eyes have never deceived me. So, like, she has, it feels like she has faith in Kinji because she is setting that precedent that, like, we don't want mediocre people in our family. Like, we, we take pride in who we are. But to me, it never reads as toxic because I think she mm-hmm. sees something in Kinji when she first meets him. That, like, she knows, like, he has it in. I agree, and I think, for me, her making this pronouncement here, her saying that the Gianucci clan has no use for mediocre men, (laughs) is serving two purposes. Number one, it's reminding the family that she is the top judge, right? She's going to make the call. And number two, it is setting the stage for down the line when she backs him... It is an immediate endorsement of his value, right? So when she pushes her chips to Kenji's side of the table, she has already just, you know, earlier in the birthday party weekend reminded everyone, we don't accept mediocre men here. So if I give him the okay, he's okay. I like grandma very much in this movie. She's definitely like... She's a hint of Manic Pixie Dream Grandma, but I dig it. Maybe she is Manic Pixie Dream Grandma, but, like, I'm here for it. Like, Yep. <laughs> she's incredible. <laughs> I love her to death in this entire movie. <laughs> I am on her side at every step of this movie, and I love it. Yep. <laughs> in the context of this boisterous family discussion and the family kind of grilling uh, Natsuki on Kenji and on her relationship and all of that, Natsuki very clearly has a script that she is following. She has invented a history for Kenji, where he studied, where he spent his time, what his future plans are. Mm-hmm. Kenji, on the other hand, is just very clearly not even confused, although he is confused, but he is just existentially unsure of what his role is in this moment. Mm-hmm. And he's struggling at dinner He's kind of grasping for any sort of solid ground that he can put his uh, his metaphorical feet on. And then after dinner, I don't know if like Noski went to help clean up or to chat with another member of her family or what, but she brought him to this big family estate and then just left him alone. (laughs) 
And there's an extended scene of him just like wandering through the house, both physically and sort of psychically unsure of himself. Yeah, I think this happened. Does this happen before or after everybody going to get a bath? This is, I think, yeah, during and after bath time. So we see like a couple of family members off in the distance chatting. We briefly meet Kazuma, who is an introverted computer cousin. And we very briefly visit two twins, like young twins, hiding in the bathtub that Kenji is going to try to get a bath in. Yes. <laughs> so there's a moment where the twins' mom has been giving them a bath, and as is not uncommon, also just like kind of getting a bath herself while she's taking care of this. And there's a moment where Kenji bumps into her with a towel on, or without and with a towel on, and that kind of freaks him out. But then the twins are hiding in the bathtub. And to me, that is the existentially dreadful moment. Like the just the the sense where Kenji has lost all grasp on any sense of like self-confidence or purpose or sense of why he's here. He feels that insecure dread in such a real way that it was it's appropriately painful to watch as a viewer. My heart hurts for Kenji in this moments. Yeah, there's a few times throughout this movie where my heart hurts for Kenji, the it's not their mom. It's the uh, Natsuki's the one that's like helping the kids get. Oh, that's bathed. right. Yes, yeah, of course. This is important because like she pops out to tell him that and he's like, "I'm sorry, I didn't look." But like he's supposed to be like they're supposed to be a couple. <laughs> yes, yes. And she's like tries to play that off. She's like, "Uh, it's fine." <laughs> okay, so that's basically all of the stage setting. That's probably the first twenty minutes of the movie or so, and it's really just positioning. Kenji within the house and positioning all of the family members around grandma to sort of give us a sense of the multiple relationships at play here. We kick into gear when a new family member shows up, uh, Wabiski. Yeah, Wabiske. Wabiske, yes, thank you. Wabiske. You're all your incorrect pronunciations of these names every time we do anything that's uh, an anime episode is a genuine treat for me. Oh man, you should hear me on Mount Olympus when I'm trying to pronounce old Greek names. It is possibly worse. Incredible. <laughs> I have a lead ear for languages. But you do your best and we appreciate you. I do. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but he shows up. He's been missing for about 10 years, we learn. And there's a real odd dynamic between him and the rest of the family. Because the rest of the family, while they clearly have differences and disagreements and whatever... There's a real sense of, like, community and love to all of them. When he shows up, there's a palpable shift in the family's energy. And I need a little help on the backstory here. Did he, in fact, steal the last of the family money? Is that kind of how the story goes? The way I read this is that that was, like, his inheritance. It was, like, left to him. And, like, that's all they had left. And he just okay. took it, and he decided, I'm going to run off to America. Okay. So he, like, cashed out early on his inheritance. That's the way that I read it. I could be incorrect, but I read it that he, like, cashed out on all that, ran off with it to make more money in America. It's the American dream. And then right. <laughs> to turn around and be like, look, I made all this money for y'all. Yes. So we will learn eventually that what he was trying to do was restore the family's fortune. Mm -hmm. But being presumably a brash teenager, 
He never felt compelled to share that information with any of the rest of the family. He just, like, cashed out and disappeared. Yeah, not a good way to win friends and influence people. (laughs) Right. And when he first shows up, this is the first time everyone's seen him in a decade, (laughs) he is not interested in really explaining where he's been or apologizing or even kind of trying to create any bridges. To be fair, neither is the family. Like, they're not giving him much of a fair shake either. This goes both ways. But he just shows up with a huge chip on his shoulder, and the family has equally large chips on all of their shoulders. Nobody likes anybody here, except for Natsuki, who remembers him as the cool older cousin that she sort of had a crush on. Yeah, like, he's the cool uncle that I guess she idealized as a child. Cool uncle is back. But we don't initially know why, and he's not forthcoming with that info. He's just sort of vaguely antagonizing the family. I think he wants it to be a surprise for Granny on her 90th birthday that, hey, I made all our money back. Oh, that's a good point. I bet you're right. And to their credit, like, they don't kick him out. They don't tell him he's not welcome. Mm -hmm. They may make him feel unwelcome at turns. But he is, like, he is welcomed into the house, and he just coexists with the family for a bit. Tenuously, but does coexist. Right. There are various points where he denies knowledge that it's Grandma's birthday this weekend, but to me that is all pretty transparent. Like, he is mm-hmm. obviously here for this weekend, to some degree because he knows what this weekend is. Right. Okay, so a lot's happening within the context of this night, which is why it feels like we're talking about, you know, we're spending a lot of time here, but there's a lot going on in this initial night. Because mm-hmm. there's also, we're going to set up a Hanafuda game that I think is called Koi Koi. It's Hanafuda for sure. I don't know the exact name because I don't play Hanafuda, but right. they do say Koi Koi whenever they end a turn, presumably. <laughs> I don't understand yes. the rules of Koi Koi. <laughs> I've seen this movie a dozen times easy because I love this movie, but I still don't understand how it works. <laughs> we learn that Hanafuda is a popular pastime specifically for this family. My family, when we get together, we play Euchre. Every, all, nonstop, all of the time, in every configuration within the family you can imagine. Euchre is just, it's sort of what we do with our hands to kill time while we're having a conversation. Okay. <laughs> and I get the sense that that's what, at least in the past, Hanafuda was for this family. They're just, there's always someone at the table playing, and it's part of how they socialize. Whew, that is a long night, and you know what? It's not over. Because there's one more big event that's happening in this night, and that is a secret math phone code. (laughs) Kenji gets a secret, like, math problem on his phone. Mm -hmm. And he solves it, sends in the answer, is very proud of himself, and falls asleep. We now get our second look at Oz, because Oz has been hacked. And we are led to believe, both through Kenji's uh, conversation with Takashi, as well as later news reports, that it is Kenji's fault that Oz has been hacked because Oz has this super complex multi-charactered security code and that is the puzzle that he cracked on his phone. He cracked the security code of Oz. Seems to be the case. His pal sends him like a burner avatar basically. He says, hey, I Mm -hmm. built you a new avatar, loaded it onto this phone. You're this dumb squirrel now. Exactly. You're a goofy looking squirrel now. And he, Kenji, uses that new goofy squirrel avatar to pop into Oz to see what's going on because he knows that there's problems. Mm-hmm. And this is where we get a better look at like the broad landscape of Oz and very specifically King Cosma, who is like the best PVP 
fighter in the game. He's the Daigo Umahara of whatever this is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Oz has like a PvP arena. Uh, King Cosma, which is this cool looking like Jackrabbit guy, is the King PvP fighter. And while he is in there as a squirrel watching, Love Machine, which is the like manifest avatar of a hacking program that got into Oz once the security code was breached and is using Kenji's old avatar. Okay, that's a big complex sentence. The security code was breached. A malware program, a hacking program, was uploaded to Oz after the security code was breached, and that program stole Kenji's avatar and is just, like, wrecking its way through Oz. It gets into a fight with King Cosma and beats him. It starts consuming other avatars to gain more power. It is just sort of this weird almost Alice in Wonderland-esque sort of absurdist representation of a virus consuming a computer program. They have like this initial chase sequence where King Cosmo, who we find out is the kid Cosmo because same name, come on y'all. Like he chases him through, catches him, but then the kids kind of pour into the room and they start distracting Mm -hmm. And so he gets away and he consumes a bunch of other accounts like the small Kenji looking avatar that he stole with Mickey Mouse ears just (laughs) bores these other accounts, just eats them entirely whole. Yep. Turns into this jacked like fucking soul caliber looking motherfucker. Yeah, Um, that's a good way to put it. And just starts giving Cosmo a lot harder of a time. And like the PvP kind of thing that's going on. <laughs> uh, the kids distract him enough and like he loses. And so like he loses his rank and Love Machine kind of takes over. It's emotional storytelling, y'all. The kid's supposed to be like, ah, oh, damn it. I got to get, I need, now, now my role in this movie is clear. I got to get back at Love Machine. <laughs> it is. I'm glad you said it's emotional storytelling. Mm-hmm. Because one of the knocks this movie sometimes gets is that like, the digital science, so to speak, doesn't hold up hold up well. That Hasoda clearly doesn't really understand uh, programming and interfaces and all of that. But it's not supposed like that's not the point of what this is doing. This is not hard science fiction. It is, as you say, emotional storytelling that has just enough trappings to kind of let it hold together in your brain. This is science fantasy, y'all. <laughs> yeah. This is you're supposed to just be having fun with it. And having fun in this fake world that's not real. <laughs> it's okay. The people feel real. That's where you, the reality is. The right, rest of it right. is like window dressing, y'all. Right. <laughs> so back in real life, Kenji gets arrested because his face is showing up on the news as the kid who cracked the Oz security. I think mm-hmm. based on the fact that his avatar is the one that got hacked. That is like... Mm-hmm. That's the first line of investigation for police. They say, oh, we see the virus. It's literally wearing the face of Kenji. Must have been him that did it. Yeah, I don't think they even realize it's a virus. It's just like, that's the account that did all these things. This account, oh, yeah. all of this stuff tied to it. All His whole identity is tied to these accounts, like everyone in the world. Right. So it's got to be this kid. One of the family members, this sort of uncomfortable uncle, mm-hmm. is a cop. Yeah. Go figure. <laughs> it's gonna be hard for me to be nice right now it's gonna be difficult in this particular moment most, all the time but especially this particular moment he slaps some cuffs on kenji the family calls kenji out for being a liar because we now learn 
because the news is reporting on every detail of Kenji's life, mm-hmm. that he's just like a junior in high school and not a secret computer genius who spent a year in America. And this is also where they kind of put together that like she that she just fabricated the identity of her fiance in the image of her uncle that she had a crush on when she was a kid. It's real weird. Yes. Yeah, her imaginary boyfriend was just like a chromo variant of uh, Wabizke. And she is super embarrassed by all this, like when she gets called right. out on it. Like she's like, it is very, very teenager way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like maybe she hadn't even put that all together. I think you might be right. Like she's just like, uh, no. <laughs> her own like childish soul is laid bare for her. Mm-hmm. Because we've all had that moment, right, where we're, like, 17 and we're suddenly, like, looking back on our 13 or 11-year-old self and cringing, like, oh, oh no, there's still a lot of that person in me, and that's, oh, no. That's uncomfortable. (laughs) Yep. And I think you're right. In that moment, like, she probably had not realized that the fake boyfriend she was fabricating was based on, like, nine-year-old her's crush. But now she does. (laughs) Grandma kind of calls everyone out and tells them to hush up. And Kenji, to his everlasting credit, goes over to Grandma and thanks her for making him a part of this weekend before he's hauled to jail. Mm-hmm. It's a very sincere moment for him. It's very on brand for him. Good news, though. There's a lot of traffic right now because Love Machine is wrecking shop in Oz. And as aforementioned, most of Japan's technology at this point is tied in one way or another to Oz. So he's like rerouting traffic patterns. Mm-hmm. He's like messing with people's cell phones and GPS signals. He's just sort of wantonly causing chaos. He's not calling everyone's phone and saying Moshi Moshi over and over again, but <laughs> right up it gets right up to that point. Right beside that, yeah. So there's so much traffic that the cop just turns around. I think uh so when they get back, Grandma has realized to some extent what's going on. Because the news is covering the fact that like all of these sort of institutional systems are breaking down, right? All of these societal infrastructures are falling apart. Mm-hmm. Grandma has two aces up her sleeve here. Number one, she's got a big family, and they are spread throughout several key industries. There's mm-hmm. medics, there's... Uh, emergency response folks. There's like city engineer workers. So she first starts calling all of her family and saying like, hey, calm down, get in control of yourself and then fix this. Mm -hmm. And her second ace is while her family doesn't have money anymore, they do still have the family name. And she had a lifetime of having high profile, like political and cultural contacts friends so she Mm -hmm. starts calling all of her old pals who are in positions of authority and power throughout japan and basically berating them into doing their jobs right she is the best i love this grandma this is my favorite moment with her i think in the entire movie (laughs) where she just starts calling people and is like where this old lady starts exercising her privilege for the common good my heart grew three sizes that day. Mark. <laughs> it's so good. It felt, it feels so good. Cause she's calling all of it. She's like, Hey, don't get discouraged. You can do this. We got to check on everybody. I know everything's fucked up, but you can do that. Like she's, it's, it's literally the best. It is literally the best Mark. <laughs> so especially in this moment where she's 
berating someone for like your son set up that nonprofit as a tax haven and maybe it can finally be put to good use. Like, I, <laughs> yes. Oh, I love it so much. My heart. <laughs> it is as though in these moments that she becomes the grandmother of all of Japan mm-hmm. and she is operating all of the levers of both love and guilt to get the country to yes. do the right thing. Like she's just exerting <laughs> external grandma pressure on an entire country. It's incredible. It's so good. It is so good. And it's so effective that love machine realizes the threat that this 90 year old woman with zero technological savvy represents to him the world's most sophisticated artificial intelligence. Yes. So he's got to shut that phone down. Right. What a beautiful, like, weird pairing for a nemesis. But, like, all of the systems in Japan start functioning because Grandma knows that they don't depend on Oz to exist. Oz is like a layer, an administrative layer above them. But if you just disconnect from technology, people can still you know, function in their systems. They can get people to hospitals. They can manually figure out directions instead of use GPSs. Like, the people just overcome it. And so this very analog woman becomes a big threat to Love Machine's plans. It's wild. And, like, she does it in a way that, like, to like to make it clear, we're not going primitivist on y'all. Like, <laughs> to be clear... <laughs> We know, and the movie knows, people need technology to live. We're going to get there. But she's speaking specifically about things like GPS and, like, the sort of software that is, like, ease of use. Yes, yes. Sort of thing, and not necessarily, like, a, like, necessity for people to survive. Like, they're freaking out because they don't know what, like, if any of these things are real that they're getting, like, pings from in their system. But they could still like they could still call people and check up on people yes. manually and do all these things. They can do the best that they can even without all of the things that make life easier for everybody else. Yeah, like she's not calling hospitals and telling them to shut off the defibrillators and break out the leeches mm-hmm. or anything. Right. Love Machine hones in on the threat of this family, mm-hmm. and specifically of Grandma. Meanwhile. It is revealed to us that Kenji is not a criminal because Love Machine basically blasted out this encryption challenge to a whole set of people who were identified as like high level math geniuses. And about 50 of them actually solved it. Kenji included, but when he sent the response, he included a typo accidentally. So he solved the puzzle, but he could not have been the one who actually broke the encryption because of a typo. He spelled knowledge with a Q. That's where that's where you right. end up. <laughs> right. Which really is insignificant to the plot. It's just a moment for us, the audience, to know, like, oh, yeah, it wasn't his fault. It may be better just for Kenji to experience, like, the right. catharsis of knowing it is not his guilt to carry. Yeah, he has this new set of, like, shame that washes over him, though, that he, like, fucked up the math <laughs> equation. And you can see right. it on his face where he's like, oh, he's like, <laughs> yeah. He's still white, and I didn't even get it right. He's like, yep. all this for nothing. Um, so. It is this beautiful moment where you see that this 
17-year-old child has structured his identity and sense of self-worth around the fact that he is very good at math. Mm-hmm. And even though it's good news that he got this math problem wrong, it is still an assault to his sense of self that he got yes. this math problem wrong. A hundred percent. And this is where we actually get Oz stabilizing somewhat because he's able to like punch in that code. Like he solves the code again. Yes. And everything seems to stabilize for the time being. What had happened, I think like from a narrative perspective is that love machine had barricaded himself inside the Oz administrative building, which is sort of the digital representation of where all of the transactions happen. And Kenji cracks the code to reopen the administrative building so that data can start flowing again. I don't know how much them tubes be gummed up, but like he does right. something to fix it. Again, this probably isn't how tech works, but that's not the point. <laughs> right. <laughs> because once the administrative building is open... People have access to Oz. Chunks of it aren't functioning still, and avatars are being consumed, but people can reconnect to Oz. There's a moment where everyone says, like, oh, he fixed it. Oh, no, wait, the virus is still there. Right. Now we learn that Cool Uncle, who's been gone for a decade... Wabiske. Wabiske is the creator of Love Machine. He admits to the family. He admits to Granny. He made this virus... And further, he sold it to the U.S. Armed Forces, which my dude, no. Yeah, he, like, he comes back to this lady and he's like, congratulations, I made a fortune by selling a destructive AI to U.S. imperialists. Yep, for a moment it's like, oh, I made a fortune, I've restored the family's fortune. Beautiful, my child. Oh, I did it by creating a digital terror weapon. And Granny is having none of this. She, like, <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> She just quietly gets up, walks over to a wall, takes down a Nagi Nada, and is like, I'm gonna fucking kill this boy, I swear to God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so good. It's a very good scene there, because then, like, we see that, like, everyone's scared, nobody stops her, but everyone's very frightened of the moment, and, like, tables are getting overturned, but Wabiske knows that, like, that woman, despite the fact that he sees that he has fucked up in her eyes... Loves him too much to actually kill him with this thing. Yeah. And so they had that, like, quiet moment where he's just, like, he pulls it back and, like, holds it to his, like, face. Yeah. And they just kind of, like, stand there for a bit, like, staring each other down. It's it's very good. There is on Wabaske's face, and I don't know how you do this with animation, let alone the sort of animation that Hasoda likes to work with. There's two <laughs> conflicting emotions. One is that sense of childish love, right? I know this woman loves me so much that she won't strike and kill me. Mm-hmm. And simultaneously, there is the grief and shame and like shattered pride because this was supposed to be his moment of triumph. He came mm-hmm. back ready to tell the family that he had made good. He saved them. Like, I know you guys didn't trust me. And there's some contextual background to the fact that he was adopted. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I don't want to get into too much, but is relevant to kind of some of the interrelationships at play here. And he has come back a little cagey, a little smarmy, sure. Could have handled it a lot better, but he came back expecting this to be his moment of both triumph and redemption. Yeah. And instead, here is Grandma, the one woman in the family who will stand by him regardless, who he knows loves him beyond any doubt just shaking her head sadly at what is supposed to be his moment of triumph. And boy, the emotion, it's its right there on this animated face. And it's, 
heartbreaking. Even for a character we're not really supposed to like at this point. Like, it's just a moment of this, like, little child reflected in this adult body. This little child, like, holding up a thing and saying, look what I made. And mm-hmm. and the person that he wants to validate him just says, no, you didn't make that. Or you, you did make that. But that's bad and dumb and you messed up. Yeah. And Granny's correct. She's correct. Like, he built mm-hmm. a tremendously dangerous weapon. She is correct to slap him down for it but my heart still breaks for him in that moment because he was here for redemption he made good and granny's the one and only person that he really really cares about what she thinks of him mm-hmm. and he does not get the reaction that he wanted yeah wabi's gay is kind of like the grimy black sheep of the family but we don't have, we're never supposed to just hate him right and we're supposed to hate love machine <laughs> but we don't we're not supposed to hate wabi's gay really we're supposed to be frustrated with and like not really understand wabi's gay yeah. like the family does <laughs> but like there he still has some moments of legitimate charm like i i love his character i i feel like you find out so much about him earlier on in the movie where he's sitting there on his phone and the family's off doing their own thing trying to like learn the happy birthday song mm-hmm and the little kid walks up to him and is like, what are you doing? And he's like, what are you looking at? And he's like, ladies with big booms. And then he turn, goes to turn it around and like to scare the little kid. There's so much charm in that moment for me. Yeah. It is. Obviously, this story is the story of Kenji and Natsuki in a lot of ways. And obviously, mm-hmm. Granny is the character that overshadows everyone else. But there was an argument to be made for Wabasuke as having the most complex and interesting personal arc within this movie. I mean, that's probably fair. We definitely get to see him kind of just run the gamut of like his outlook throughout this movie. I know you don't want to get into it very much, but they do like kind of drop it on you later that, or I think maybe it was before this even. Uh, it's whenever like all of the ladies of the family are in the kitchen talking. That's a whole sentence, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, and they're like... Yeah, you wouldn't, you just joined the family recently, you wouldn't know, but Wabiske is basically Grandpa's illegitimate son, and Granny yeah. took him in. But like, Granny took him in, like, with, as far as we can tell, no reservations. It's just like, yeah, this mm-hmm. is one of my kids now. Yep. And that's great. It's like, it's very, it it's very good. And obviously, in a family this big, with like, a genealogy that this family has, there's tension right. there. And I think they walk that line very well, where we can kind of... Agree. Like, if we squint, if we squint, we can kind of see where Wabiske is coming from. We don't agree with the way he did things, but we can kind of see how he got where he went. And it speaks volume to the character of Granny, who did, as you say, just immediately accept him as a full member of the family. At no point did she make him feel less Mm -hmm. because of his complicated history. Which was outside of his control. It's not his fault that he is who he is. And Granny just loved him as she loved all of her grandchildren. It's all very good. So we now get, this is kind of the close of the second day. Mm. And at the close of the second day, Kenji and Granny play whatever the Koi Koi Hanafuda game is. Mm -hmm. And they have a bit of a chat. And she immediately hones right in on his deep care for her granddaughter. Mm-hmm. She sees through 100% of him right to his core. She knows how he feels about Natsuki. And mm-hmm. she tasks him 
with being a good partner to her. I love that grandma sees it clearly before either of them do. Yeah, I think he's got like more of a, it's hard to kind of figure out where Kenji sits, right? Because like, I think he definitely cares about Natsuki Mm -hmm. in like, not even a romantic way. How do you, how do you put this? Like when he says like enough to die for her, I believe Mm -hmm. that whether it's romantic or not. Agreed. Yep. There's a sense, sometimes I think in relationships, people start off not knowing each other and just dating to find out if they're going to work, right? And that's a valid way to enter a relationship. There are also times where you start off being deep friends and then it transitions into a dating relationship. And I think there's this weird sort of soft ground in between that where you've been friends, there's a sense that it may become something more, but even in that space that the care and love is genuine, even if it's not going to grow into romance, which in this case it does. Mm-hmm. But there is a deep love between those characters, not based on romantic feelings, but based on their previously existent relationship. They're special to each other, regardless of whether or not it develops into something more. They are clearly special to each other. It's there and real for them, and it is palpable for Granny. She can see it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's arguable that Hasoda likes to explore that transitional space between... That liminal space? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we didn't use that word yet. Got to get it in there. Liminal space. Between friendship and uh, romantic partnership. And it's obviously a time and a sort of emotional interaction that he finds interesting. And every time he brings it to life... It just feels so real and believable. These characters care deeply about each other. And you're right. Granny pins him down and says, would you give your life for her? And he, maybe unsure of his own feelings and certainly unsure of her feelings, honestly admits, yes, I would. It's it's a good moment. And it's just, again, it's Granny at her peak, like, insight, but also just at her peak, Granny. Mm-hmm. she's being a real grandma in that moment and it's sweet that's when they first meet that's not even during this moment that's like just whenever he's first running into this lady that he's never met oh, yeah. before and yeah, yeah. like he answers yes she's like lucky girl and then we get that kind of come around full circle now whenever she says like will you protect her no matter what here's where like they're a little more familiar with one another mm-hmm and you see him kind of like break down and be like, I don't really believe in myself, which everyone knows. Everyone can see. Right, right. Has. And he's like, you should change your bet. And she's like, no, this is, no, you can do this. You're good. Yep. <laughs> Knowing full well that she's about to win this round. Yeah. <laughs> and she does. She wins. And then overnight, Love Machine, in control of all technology, shuts off her pacemaker and she dies. Mm-hmm. The first time I saw this movie, that really threw me for a loop. Obviously, I was prepared for it this time. I had a very emotional reaction to Granny dying because I like that character very much. Both times I've watched this movie, that scene has hit me like a ton of bricks. I, I'm not, This part of the film doesn't hit me. We're going to get to it. There's two points coming up very soon that really get me. This doesn't get me. I react to this moment the same way that eventually when another character finds out that Granny is dead um, Mm -hmm. does. And that like, it's just like the air has left the room. 
mm-hmm. and you don't like you're just trying to process what is happening. Right. That's the way that this scene hits me. And I kind of feel like that's a way a lot of these characters who aren't like there's a handful of characters who are like, like, don't stop doing the rest. Don't stop doing CPR. Or right. Like, like it's you need to let it go. It's like she's gone. Like there's all that happening. And but m- most everyone is just quiet and in shock of what's, what's yeah. happening here. And we now, from a film perspective, we have now entered the third act. We are now racing towards the showdown. Right. So a few threads are going to kick off here, but we will start with the split within the family where birthday planning changes into funeral planning. Mm -hmm. And the youngest of grandmother's children, I think. Mm Mm-hmm who is himself, you know, to be clear, in his late 50s, early 60s, tries to rally the family to fight. And he's very clearly a Luddite. Like, he doesn't understand technology. He's everyone's, like, goofy gearhead, like, uncle. Mm-hmm. He's, like a, he's like a sailor or something, right? Like, he's like a boat captain. Yes, yeah. He's a big, strong guy with a bit of, like, a beer gut. Mm-hmm. He's that guy, and I like him. Mm-hmm. But he says... This family has always fought, dating back to our earliest days. We have fought for uh, our family. We have fought for our country. And I do not understand the adversary we're facing, but I understand there is an adversary. I understand he killed my mom, and it is our job to go take care of it. Yeah, there's a split that happens here. And I I am always on his side of this. Like, he and Kenji are both like, hey... We need to do something about this before somebody else dies because of this. Like, this is just the first instance of this. And then there's the other half of the family that are like, no, we need to take care of our own. What are you talking about? Stop worrying about everybody else's problems. Something tragic has just happened to us. Right. And usually I have a pretty level, like, understanding of both sides of this. And that, like, you are in, like, a traumatic situation and you're trying to process grief and it's all you can do to take care of yourself. Sure. But given the state of the world right now, Mark, <laughs> when the lady, I, I, there's some names in this movie I still don't understand because there's, it's a big <laughs> right. family. When she's like, no, we need to be focusing on this. Stop. Like, don't be ridiculous. I'm like, shut the fuck up, Karen. Like, <laughs> I have such a visceral reaction to people being like, things are like, we should only care about us right now whenever this thing yeah. is out there and people could die and I don't care about anybody else dying right now. I only care about me and mine. Right, right, yeah. So right now, especially as a disabled person, I'm like, shut the fuck up. This is the thing you need to take care of. I get that your mom just died and that's horrible, but like, that could be somebody else's mom. Exercise yep. your empathy in this moment and realize things are going to get a lot worse if somebody doesn't deal with this. That's when it becomes real for me because there's an initial moment where I think that part of the family doesn't really realize the threat that Love Machine represents. It's like, well, who cares if he messes up Oz? Like, that'd suck, but the computer people will put it back together eventually, whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's the initial argument. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's a computer virus and Grandma died. You are just like, you are turning your grief into rage, which is not a healthy way to process it. You need to be Mm -hmm. here and present and process your grief and then care about the computer virus later. Up to that point, I am on board. But then Kenji, who is quiet and unassuming and does not like 
sticking his foot into the dynamics of this family, raises his hand and says, but no, that thing killed grandma by stopping her pacemaker. He could do that to anyone. And at that point, all other arguments should have become invalid. Yeah, because it's one thing when, like, the aggro uncle gets up and is like, we gotta fight because right. it's what we do. We're fighters and we do the fight and it's toxic and it's, like, it's just shy of toxic masculinity if you, it is. Don't, it is. If you don't read it within the context of the situation. And she is recognizing that and being like, yo, calm the fuck down. We got shit to take care of. But right. when, like, the really passive kid right. <laughs> stands up and goes, I think we need to do something about this. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there should be pause all around. So half the family starts funeral planning and the other half goes into kind of modern digital warfare mode. Mm-hmm. One of the uncles owns a major uh, computer production and distribution factory. Mm-hmm. And he provides them with like a state of the art supercomputer. Uh, big aggro uncle brings his boat <laughs> for power. I'm I'm unclear of what the boat's being there for. He talks about how bright its lights are. Yeah, the boat seems to be putting out power. I think there's like a generator okay. in it. Oh, that's right. You're right. And it's generating all of the power and he has to put it in the water to cool it. And then the other uncle who like works for the military or whatever brings in like a high powered antenna. Mm-hmm. So they're wiring up this system to let them maybe not approach Love Machine at his level of power, but at least to fight back more reasonably than they could do off a laptop. Cosmo has them go get low latency CRT monitors because LCD has too much delay. It's real delightful. They build a big supercomputer and uh, Cosmo is obviously going to be their champion because he is the best fighter in Oz. Mm-hmm. And the way they know to fight, even in the digital realm, is like, just get in there and punch strong. Yeah. <laughs> Do a punch. So they bring in a bunch of ice to keep the supercomputer cooled down. Cosma calls out Love Machine. They have this well-orchestrated plan to, like, trap him inside one of the many digital buildings. How does it mm-hmm. work from a technological standpoint? Don't ask. It doesn't matter. They're going to punch him and trap him in the digital web. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the World Wide Web. <laughs> Unfortunately... The dumb cop uncle took the ice away. Uh huh. And the computer overheats. Yeah. And shuts down before Kazuma can win. Love Machine breaks out of the trap, and we're now back at ground zero. When the small brown kid turns around and punches the cop in the face, Mark, yeah. it feels very good. It feels very good. It does. It was a movie that was made a full decade ago in a culture that is different from our own. Mm-hmm. But. In this place and time, there is no way you can see that scene and not hear your heart cheer for it. Mm -hmm. Because I had exactly the same reaction. Good. (laughs) All right. So now the stakes are raised. Uh, Love Machine realizes that someone has stepped up their game and are challenging him on a higher level. So he responds by taking that asteroid probe that we've periodically heard news updates about and reprogramming it to fall back out of space and target a nuclear site, Mm -hmm. which obviously is going to have devastating uh, damage across all of uh, whatever area that it strikes. I think they they specifically said it was targeting one of the nuclear sites in Japan. 
It just has like a bunch of like nuclear sites popping up anywhere. You know, at the end of our war game where they're like, we're going right. to drop a nuke somewhere <laughs> randomly in the world. And here's a countdown timer and you got to be that. It's that. We're doing our war game. So Cosma gets absorbed by Love Machine in like a final desperate knows he can't win fight. But this poor 13 year old doesn't know anything else to do other than try. Right. And while that plan is falling apart, they discover a note from Granny to be read upon her death. Mm-hmm. And that note is kind of read in and around the context of a family dinner. It is sweet and endearing. It's Grandma reminding them who they are and what they mean to her and just sort of like rallying the troops from from beyond the grave. Yeah, there's a particular line in this where... She says, there's no shortage of awful things in the world, but hunger and loneliness must surely be two of the worst. That's not written down anywhere. I've just watched this movie 12 times. Uh, (laughs) And like, that's so good. Um, We got, I I feel like we need to back up just a little bit, Mark. Because we did skip over one of the parts of the movie that hits me particularly hard. And that is just whenever the entire family is sitting there grieving, and it's just this quiet, sweeping shot. And then it lands on Natsuki, who, like, doesn't know how to process everything that's happening, and she starts crying. And then Kenji doesn't know how to deal with that, because, like, Mm -hmm. he hasn't ever seen his friend, like, just breaking down like this, much less, like, a woman he's supposed to be, like, in a relationship with, even if it's to put on airs. And who he has, in theory, been tasked to protect and safeguard. And there's some visual, like, parallels that happen here and with the next moment that gets me. Where, like, she's, like, just, like, hold me. And, like, he all he can muster. And, like, do you remember being a teenager being terrified of women, Mark? <laughs> yes. Why, and, yes, like, I do. All he can, <laughs> right. All he can muster is to just, like, hold her, like, pinky. Yeah. And then, like, she just starts bawling. Yeah. And, like, he eventually, like, gets up, like, the courage to just, like, like hold her hand at least. And they just mm-hmm. kind of, like, sit there while she bawls. And it's a very powerful moment for me. It reminds me of when my grandfather passed away and everybody just kind of, like, was sitting at that house. And we all just, like, sat there together and everything was just, qu- like, dead quiet. And, like, nobody, nobody knew what to say or do in that moment. Her tears are so incredibly real. Mm -hmm. Uh, her crying is an ugly cry which is an amazing thing to capture animated and I think you are right there is something profoundly human about shared grief Mm -hmm. because grief is not a thing at least in a situation like this grief is not a thing that can be fixed it's not a thing that can be stopped literally all you can do is walk through it together And there's a real profundity to that in this scene because he's not going to make it better, but what he's going to do is just walk with her through it. Right. And he doesn't even barely know how to do that. His poor little, like, 17-year-old terrified of girl's heart is just, (laughs) it's everything that he has to be present for her in a useful way. And that is, I think, a real victory for him. It's a small moment that is a significant victory. And, like, it's important that we back up there because it's in his face in this moment that we see, like, you see his, like, demeanor change. You see, like, the focus in his eyes in this moment is, like, 
that we have to stop this before we ever get to the conversation where he like stands up and says, I agree with him. Like in that moment, you can see it on his face that he realizes what's at stake here, that like it's up to them to try and put a stop to this if nobody else is going to do it. Yes, there is a sense for Kenji where not to put too like candy coated romance of a gloss on this. So forgive me for this analogy. Kenji knows that he is fighting for the whole world. And that is valid. Within this moment, Kenji comes to the realization, he awakens to the understanding that Natsuki for him is the whole world. And so while he never shifts away from the idea that like we have to do this because love machine could, you know, kill anybody. Like he still Mm -hmm. believes that he is still fighting for the whole world, but the place which she occupies in his understanding of the world has exploded. And it's so good. It's such a human expression. I can't, I know we say this all the time, but I can't get over how well Hasoda expresses those sort of things. Yes. And this comes like, keep in mind right off the tail end of her being like, promise you'll protect her. And that scene is supposed to like be like, Lucas would say that it rhymes. It rhymes. It's supposed to like reference back to that first encounter where he's like, would you do anything for her to like, Mm -hmm. would you die for her? And I think like, even in that like moment, we're seeing like that, just that shift in expression. We're seeing him kind of like internalize all that, like in its truest sense for the first time. Yeah, I think you're right. Oh, man, I'm glad you brought us back to that because we did gloss over it. It is one of the best moments in the film. I think so, too. That's the that's the first moment where, like, I watched this the first time and I cried. I was like, no. (laughs) So we read the note from Granny. Mm -hmm. Cosma goes down fighting. And now Kenji kind of kicks into gear in terms of the next stage of the plan. So he kind of rallies the troops. He tries to inspire the family. He convinces them that they still have to fight, even if it's not a fight that can be won. And there's another thing that happens in this period, too, that I don't want to gloss over. And that's uh, Natsuki realizing what the password is for, like, to get a hold of Wabiske, which is Granny's birthday. Yeah. Yeah. And so she, because this is the other part of the movie that tears me up, is whenever, like, he's sitting there and trying to, like, like, and she's, like, he's, like, trying to play the tough guy and whatever still, and then she tells him that Granny's dead, and everything just, like, stops for him and gets quiet. Yeah. Yep. And, like, in that moment where, like, he's kind of coming to grips with that, and, like, it does, it's the parallel that I was talking about earlier with, like, the holding the pinky thing. Where he's mm-hmm. holding, like, Granny's pinky walking down the road? Yeah, that's kind of threaded in through the reading of the note and his his flashbacks of memories of him being small. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's beautiful. This is the other part of the movie where I cried. Like, I teared up this time watching it. I've seen this movie 12 times. I'm like, oh, it's so good. And it obviously explodes the notion for Natsuki and for us, the viewer, earlier when he was disclaiming, saying, well, I wouldn't even came back if I knew it was her birthday. Right. We have now put that entire disclaimer to rest. Obviously, he knew. Right. And so, like, he comes, like, he comes spiraling in and, like, rejoins the rest of the family at this point. Yes. Where he's like, I need to see Granny. Uh, He's like, he's just distraught. Like, his voice is so broken there. I'm like, oh, you poor thing. 
on both both the Japanese and uh, English voice actors mm-hmm. crush it in that moment. Hell yeah. So he's back. He is trying to basically hack his own AI. He's the creator. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's trying to hack his own AI. And the kind of uh, bombastic uncle from earlier who had initially tried to rally the family says way back in feudal Japan, our family won a significant battle where we were deeply outnumbered by, uh, oh no, this was earlier, wasn't it? By leading him into a trap. And that trap is what set up the first trap with Love Machine, which ultimately failed, but the strategy was overlaid from their feudal Japan times. That was fun. This time around, there's nothing left for them. They are outmatched. They are overpowered. There is really no strategy left, but they decide, I think again, based on family history, to call him out. They say he's not going to be able to avoid, like his pride, his ego, whatever, is not going to let him ignore a challenge directly from the family that has been a thorn in his side. Mm -hmm. This is a little goofy, but I love it. Of all the places where Oz breaks down the sort of narrative overlay with the digital world, this is maybe the silliest, but I do not care. It works for me because they've threaded throughout this whole idea that, like, this AI seems to enjoy, in whatever sense that an artificial intelligence can enjoy things, playing games. That is true. That's a good point. Like, it likes playing with its food more than it likes winning. That's a very good point. And so they flag up a challenge to him saying, basically, hey, come over to a digital casino inside of Oz. Let's have a showdown. Hanafuda, one hand, winner takes all. We're betting all of the Gino Uchi avatars against you. Yeah, money match, final destination, box only, <laughs> items off, let's go. And Natsuki, now that Grandma is gone, is sort of the Hanafuda champ of the family. Mm-hmm. So she beats him round after round and goes from, I think, you know, they had whatever they had, 30-some souls in the family, 30-some avatars. She wins, and so she doubles. Like, when she beats him, she wins that many. And then she doubles again and doubles again. And she's getting up into like the 200,000s before, is it the nephews again? Something badly distracts her. She falters and loses a bunch of souls. Uh, I don't know that anything particularly distracts her. It may have just been that after like taking loss after loss, Love Machine just manages to sneak in a win. Yeah. But uh, either way, she's down to like her last couple of chips, so to speak, her last few avatars. Mm-hmm. And then, and this will sound familiar to you if you've listened to our podcast or watched uh, our war games. Yes. Users from all over the world donate their avatars to her. They flood the tubes with uh, mm-hmm. encouragement and literally like giving away their avatars for her to gamble. Yeah. Which is their identity in this world. Like they're, yes. they're literally just saying like, this is a moment where the two ideologies that were butting heads earlier about we need to take care of our own in this moment and no, we have to protect other people to protect ourselves. Yeah. It's very clear which one wins out in this moment. Absolutely. 
And of course she wins, but Love Machine had very cleverly gambled all but two of his avatars. He still got his, and significantly, he's still got the avatar of the person who controls that probe. Mm-hmm. And he now does not care about the nuclear site. He's so mad that the Jinouchi family beat him that he sends the probe straight for them. Does this sound familiar? Kenji is desperately trying to hack the probe's GPS. Uh, Wabiske is trying to hack Love Machine itself. And sort of working in tandem, they manage to nudge the GPS just enough off track that it, like, destroys the family, like, the gate and some of the yard, but does not kill the family. What happens here is that there's only those two avatars left. Presumably, however, he got into begin with and Kenji's. And he, like, locks them out of, like, accessing the satellite to upload. Right, that's right. And so this is where, like, him being good at math becomes, like, a thing. Which is legitimate. Like, I know that we've watched a lot of, like, highfalutin stuff where people are doing, like, incredible superhuman things. Right, To, like, take down a bad guy. Right? And, like, we live in the age of superheroes where people can fly around and shoot (laughs) lasers from their hands and build a suit in a cave with a box of scraps. But, (laughs) like... This, as somebody who sucks at math, is probably the most impressive. (laughs) That this kid is just like, I'm going to crack this code over, like, some, like, on some paper. And he, like, just keeps ripping it off. And, like, he solves one. And then he solves another. And then the last one he solves all, like, in his head. Yeah. And his nose is bleeding. And I'm the the uncle at this point who's like, all of that in his head? Like, what the fuck? (laughs) Like, they get this close to just being like, what the fuck? It is weirdly inspiring math. He's he's contributing everything that he he can. He's literally giving his all, like, to save this family in this moment. And he does. He just gets the gate open. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cosma decks him and just shatters Love Machine. Yeah. I love that Cosma gets, like, the killing shot there. It's great. Yeah. Because we didn't even get a chance to get into Cosma much, but his no. his character is going through some stuff, and this is a big moment for him, too. Yeah, all three of these three arcs conclude at once in this moment. Yep. Like, we already have one arc that concluded with Natsuki, who, like, lost the Hanafuda game against Love Machine's creator at the, like, right. beginning of the film, and then she beat the thing that he made that's smarter than him. And then... Yeah. <laughs> Kenji... Didn't get into the math Olympics. He was the runner up. He didn't crack the actual code and is still paying for it. And then he like wins out with math at the end. Yep. Uh, then we have Wabiske who has created this entire mess by creating Love Machine. And then he mm-hmm. unmakes Love Machine. Yep. And then Kazuma, who has lost to him over and over throughout this movie, finally gets in a win. Yeah. So we get so three good. arcs it's, all at the same time wrapping up, and it's yeah. it's beautiful. It's hard to describe how it all pays off, because in the end, it goes from being a global threat to an intensely personal threat. Mm-hmm. And these three, four characters come together in weirdly overlapping ways, like you say, to sort of kill and bury their own personal demons while also burying a sort of literal demon or an AI demon. Mm-hmm. It's, right. it's lovely. 
we get a little bit at the end of the movie of the family celebrating grandma's birthday and then celebrating uh, or observing rather her funeral. All of that's very good. It's brief, but it's good. It's nice to see the family finding their new balance. And the final moment of the film is Natsuki and Kenji confronting their feelings for each other. Sort of at the urging of the family, but this is a reckoning that's been coming for the whole movie. (laughs) And poor Kenji just cannot, verbally, he can admit how he feels, but he physically cannot, like, he barely, barely managed to grab her pinky. Mm -hmm. There's this hanging scene where they're trying to kiss. He cannot move his lips close enough to her face. And she ends up kissing him on the cheek, and it's very, very sweet. It's very good. And the whole family, the whole time, is doing the typical, like, country family thing. Which is being like, ooh, they're gonna do the thing! (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And the reason that that shift works so well earlier, where we, on its face, it should be moving from a, like, bigger threat to a smaller threat. But... We care about this family intimately throughout this movie. Yeah. That's why this. That's why when I say all the awe stuff is just window dressing and that the family is the point of the movie. Yep. Because when we get to this point, while we're shrinking in scope, it becomes so much more personal Yeah. for the audience because these are the people they have a connection with. It's less abstract and it's more direct. Yes. And this family, kind of weird and disjointed, though they are in some places, has brought Kenji in as one of them by the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he, there's this sense of the family kind of making their own last stand. And to see him as a full participant in that is very nice. It's very good. We spent a lot of time talking about this movie. We got to rank this movie. Mm-hmm. I will be honest. I'm struggling. <laughs> Interesting. Please enlighten me, Mark. I want to hear about your struggle, because usually I struggle at this point in the show. <laughs> well, it's it's a handy decision down to the end. So my numbers two, three, and four, or my bottom three, are staying in place. Okay. I adore this movie. I liked it more on second watch than I did on first watch, even. But something about the key relationship between the triumvirate of characters in The Girl Who Leapt Through Time. Mm -hmm. We talked about it, so I'm not going to repeat it a bunch. We're long in this episode. I won't spend a lot of time on it. But I love those three characters very much, and I love the personal journey that the girl herself is on. Mm -hmm. That movie really, really does it for me. It has a beautifully tight narrative. It lands so well. And I, I am splitting the finest of hairs here. To make a call on which one I like more. And here's what it comes down to for me. Okay. And I'm annoyed because I think we're going to stay in lockstep. And I always like it more when we have (laughs) conflict. But if you said to me, you may only rewatch one of these movies again within your lifespan. (laughs) It's going to be Summer Wars. So that has to be number one for me. Summer Wars, Girl Who Leapt Through Time, Our Wars, One Piece, Digimon, short. Incredible. This is the episode where we lose all credibility with the fan base. Is that so? I don't I don't know a lot about like the fan reception of these things. Yeah, people for the longest time, a girl who leapt through time was considered 
Well, I mean, I say a long time. For two films, it was considered his best film. Okay. <laughs> and then uh, where we're going next happened, and that seems to be the most respected broadly. I love all of his work. It's all very good. Even the part with stretchy pirates I enjoy. <laughs> but Summer Wars is like, it's the movie that got me really into Hosoda's larger works. I'd seen the mm. Digimon stuff before, but after I saw Summer Wars, I went back and said, well, now I have to see The Girl Who Loved Through Time. Sure. <laughs> and I do enjoy both movies. If you put like a gun to my head and said, like, which is the better movie? I would probably agree that it was The Girl Who Leapt Through Time. In terms of, like, pacing a tighter narrative, whatever. Yep, absolutely. But personally, personally, I fucking love this movie. And it resonates with me <laughs> on so many, like, tiny and broad areas. I can't, I can't not put it at number one. And I don't know if that's in, like, I'm doing this in good conscience. Is this going to be, is this have a, are we being objective about this? I would say no. I would say none of our critique is ever objective because it's, it's subjective critique. That's how critique works. So I'm going to put some words at one. I'm going to, I have to, I have to Mark. I have to do it because I love this movie yep. so much. So my list is summer wars. Then number two, the girl who let through time three are war game four, one piece, Baron Omatsuri and the secret Island and five Digimon adventure. Pilot. <laughs> Here's what I think is going on here. You and I have different tastes in some movies. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, we appreciate different things in different sorts of movies. When it comes specifically to our soft, squishy hearts, I think we both have the same soft, squishy heart. (laughs) And so a movie that plays directly to that is going to land for both of us. Yeah, I mean, you may not be wrong. There are people who have told (laughs) us we're the same person before, so. (laughs) Yes. So we might have different opinions on which superheroes look the coolest or which fast cars and guns movies are more interesting than others. I think the emotional core of these movies is playing to the emotional core we kind of share. So (laughs) you see, though, we've got a couple more left. There's still room for disagreement. For sure. And I could be surprised when I revisit these films again and go, (laughs) hey, this was way better than I remember it being the other 12 times I watched them. (laughs) So... What's next? Next up, we're going to be checking out Wolf Children. The Third One Sucks is a Retrograde Orbit radio production. If you like the show, make sure to rate and review it on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps us out. Follow us on Twitter at The Third One Sucks or email us at thethirdonesucks at gmail.com where we can chat about episodes and take your suggestions on what you would like us to cover in the future. That's the, the number three, rd1sucks at gmail.com. If you aren't already tired of our voices, you can check out our other projects, including Mindful Self-Indulgence, where Dan interviews folks about the media that has most impacted their lives, and Mount Olympus, where Mark and a panel of friends watches and reviews the Hercules and Xena television franchises, along with the rest of the Retrograde Orbit Radio family of podcasts at RetrogradeOrbitRadio.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again in the sequel.